How to cope with the threat of a global trade war? Can absolute return funds protect you from possible market turmoil? And why spending more money in retirement could be good for you? Welcome to Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Emma Ajman, Personal Finance Writer at the Investors Chronicle. And joining me today are Taha Lokhandweller, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Darius McDermott, Managing Director at Chelsea Financial Services. Trade tensions between the US and China are growing. Earlier this week, US President Donald Trump threatened to slap a 10% tariff on $200 billion of Chinese goods. That comes on top of already placing tariffs on $50 billion of Chinese exports last week. The latest move triggered a sell-off in global stock markets, and if all recovered somewhat, the threat of a trade war has not gone away. Darius, I mean, how worried should investors be about this threat? Well, clearly this is not a good thing. Um, it, it certainly should affect companies' earnings, particularly in respect sectors like uh, exporters, um, where there's big exports between the US and China or other emerging markets. That can't be good. That will feel through to their sort of earnings and their growth. And frankly, it, it just can't be good for GDP globally. And do you think that this is likely to have that much impact on UK investors? Because, I mean, arguably, if this is going to be a you know, trade war between US and China, how much is that actually going to impact people in, in the UK? Yeah, I mean, if this really does get you know, quite serious and entrenched and the, the, the trade wars continue to ratchet up, I think it's bad for all investors, particularly bad for risk assets, which mm. have had a very strong run in the last decade you know, su- supported by QE. But risk assets, of which equities clearly are one, um, are, you know, markets generally are quite correlated. If the US or emerging markets are down a lot, UK equity investors will find their valuations going down, maybe slightly less, maybe slightly more, depending on the- exactly. But, you know, given that equities have had such a good run in the last decade, valuations, nobody says equity valuations are cheap. One region might be cheap relative to another region, but... Um, with valuations where they are and this level of uncertainty, you know, I would be I would be nervous for risk investments at this moment. Okay. Given the fact that you would be nervous, I mean, what can investors do to kind of help protect their portfolio? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I know we're going to speak about absolute return funds uh, in a moment, uh, sort of bond alternatives. But, you know, there are other cautious funds, funds that just have less inequities and more in other alternatives that give diversification. Um, funds like Jupiter Distribution, it has a maximum of 35% in equities. Um, hence, if there was a big sell-off in equities, um, you would certainly be shielded uh, from downside, given that some of the other things they're going to own are government bonds, which tend to be a safe haven asset when markets sell off. So something like that um, would would be uh, an alternate for sure. Okay. And I know you said that, you know, you understand why investors would be more nervous right now. But um, in general, how much attention do you pay to sort of a macro economic picture when you're deciding where to invest? Yeah, I think you have to. Um, you know, it depends on what type of investor you are, what type of strategy you're trying to employ. If, for instance, you're an investor and you just buy US funds or you have US stocks, clearly you can buy lower risk US stocks, but you're a US fund manager, right? Um, when we look at our multi-asset portfolios, we would try to certainly keep the higher risk assets at a lower end. But, you know, the one thing you can't do is be out of the market for too long. Uh, I think it's risky to just say, no, this is bad. Equities are going to be bad. I'll just sell everything um, because you could be wrong and markets could either be stable or, or, or in fact, go up. 
you know, there's been two wobbles in equity markets this year already uh, at the end of January, early February, and then into mid-March. Post that mid-March low, the FTSE 100, for reasons I genuinely struggle to understand, was up nearly a 1,000 points, mm. uh, again, reaching new highs. Now, if you'd taken a view that at that stage holding UK equities was not a good idea, you lost out on a 10 15% rise. And you know, I think you, you know, most investors tend to be long-term in nature. We do know whether it's valuations, trade wars, war, whatever it might be, there is going to be blips. So, yeah, you can certainly dial your risk down a bit, but I wouldn't suggest um, you know being totally out of anything. Okay. It's very easy to be wrong. So on that note, then, is there anything that you're avoiding then? Or are there any particular asset classes you think actually it's better to just leave? Yeah, the trade wars have made us a bit more nervous on emerging markets. Um, We do have exposure to emerging markets, but we certainly haven't been allocating anything more in that area. Um, Emerging markets also tend to suffer when the dollar is strong. US are certainly in the developed markets having the most rate rises the more your interest rates go up tends to be the more your currency goes up and strong dollar is also broadly a negative for, for emerging markets um, rate rises broadly also you know not good for fixed income uh, so you know we, we, we'd want to be cautious on both of those types of areas but that doesn't again mean having having zero okay so um if you don't have zero what kind of funds do you still like in those areas, even though you're a bit so, more cautious on them? A, a, a nice example is a fund called Polar Capital Global Insurance. That sector tends to be less correlated to the market, has a lower beta of typically 0.8. What that means is if markets go down 10, it is likely to go down 8. Um, they're obviously specialist managers in a specialist sector. And, you know, if I want to hold some global equities holding something like that, that is a bit lower risk. Um, seems seems a sensible global equity type of play in a specialist sector. You would also argue maybe healthcare. Again, sort of things that are going to be needed no matter what happen, happens in an economic cycle. Um, but you do need to be careful in healthcare because you've got some higher risk sectors, things like biotech, which are, have a higher beta to the broader market. Um, so, yeah, selective specialist sectors and thing, things like that. Global Insurance Fund, I think, is really good. And um, are there any areas that you think are likely to do very well, given the where we are in terms of the, the cycle? I think the way I always answer these questions is we start with valuations and nothing looks cheap. Mm. You know, um, we're going to talk a bit more about fixed income. You know, at these rates, does fixed income look cheap? Probably not. Um, equities globally have been doing very well for the last 10 years. U.S. continues to be strong, and the one thing that's happening, particularly in the U.S., is earnings are going up. That means the sort of the the P.E. multiple on the market actually has come down, even though the market's gone up because the earnings have gone with them. Um, Europe certainly looks cheap uh, relative to the U.S., and earnings are doing well in Europe. But again, we've got political risks with Italy and Spain and, and more recently Germany, so... It's hard to be super positive on on, on, on much on many things at this stage in the cycle. Hmm. Um, and which funds would you would you do feel positive about then? Even though, as you say, we were at this stage. In the cycle? I'd say it's really really tricky. I mean, where you have core holdings, we have things like Jupiter European. That fund has been in our portfolios forever. It's been on our buy lists forever. It's got a very high quality growth style, but over five ten years, fund has done excellent. 
it, it is to say, it's hard to pick out anything, you know. So you, I would then go to my very favoured funds in every sector, whether it's UK income, things like Standard Life Equity Income Unconstrained with Thomas Moore as fund manager, um, which does have a bit of mid and small cap, which we quite like for diversification. But yeah, your, your very favoured funds in all these areas, um, and as I say, funds that historically you know can do better when markets are troubled. Things like Stuart Investors, Asia Pacific Leaders, a fund we've talked about a couple of times on podcasts, actually hasn't had a, a good a run because it's been underweight Chinese tech names. But you know anything that's gone up a lot, I think, is more susceptible at this stage of the cycle. Were we to see a pullback in markets based on trade wars or, or anything else that might come up to surprise us? Okay, thank you very much, Darius, for those suggestions. Now, staying on the theme of choppy markets, there are some funds which aim to make positive returns regardless of market conditions. And unsurprisingly, when markets get volatile, as they have done, as Darius has been mentioning, targeted absolute return funds, as they're called, tend to become more popular with investors. But Taha, um, you've been looking at this. Um, Absolute return funds have also been finding favour with investors wanting to reduce the exposure to bonds. So why is that? Hi, Emma. It's kind of down to what Darius was just saying in the sense that, you know, people are trying to find different ways to diversify. Bond valuations have gone up in tandem with equity valuations in the last few years because of quantitative easing. And, you know, we're starting to see rate rises in the US, the UK and Europe are going to start tightening at some point in the next few years as well. And in that situation, bond valuations are looking quite, you know, iffy. People are slightly nervous. In that sense, Target absolute return funds do something in the sense that they are just they just invest in a broader range of different strategies that aren't conventional long buy and hold strategies, and they they add something different to a portfolio, and therefore that's you know that's that's how they diversify in a slightly different manner. Okay, um, and Darius, you're actually one of the investors um, we spoke to for this article who has been decreasing your bond allocation and adding in more targeted absolute return funds. Um, why have you done this? Well. So, if, for instance, in our cautious fund, you know, typically in a cautious fund, you would have anything from 30 to 60% in fixed income. Actually, we've got under 10, and it's very sp- specific where we have it. But it's, it's all down to the rate rises. And, you know, it, it's when you move up the risk curve from sort of cash to government bonds, from government bonds to corporate bonds, from corporate bonds to high yield, and then into equities, at every one of those levels, you should be rewarded for that extra risk. And where that risk reward doesn't look favourable in the current climate, given that the last US Fed meeting suggested actually that we might get four rises in the US this year, the most recent UK monthly meeting minutes was published yesterday, and the Bank of England's committee is six for maintaining rates and three. That's been moving up. So this all points to rate rises, which, as Taha said, historically is less good for bonds. And given that the sort of troubled world we live in, some of these absolute return funds are actually able to make money by shorting markets or shorting stocks or shorting bonds. And actually, when those asset prices fall, if they have shorted it, that means actually to sell the sort of the interest away, you can actually make money in those environments. Historically, these things would have been called hedge funds, but in the targeted absolute return space over the last decade has become much more accessible to retail investors, which I think is a good thing. And Taha, Darius has mentioned some of the the benefits of targeted absolute return funds. What other ones did you sort of uncover? 
as as I said, there's this concept of going long and going short, and short means that you're betting on the valuation to go down. So you have um, equity funds that go long short. That means that they are whatever situation the manager feels that we are in the kind of equity market cycle that can either be very long or very short. So if you you know if you're expecting a downturn, you'd expect that to have more short positions than long positions. And what this means is that over a market cycle, they make absolute returns, as in that if markets are going down, they're still making positive returns. And if markets are going up, they're also making positive returns because that they can make long and short positions. But there are other ways to look at this as well. So there's also macroeconomic absolute return funds. And what these do is that they invest in multi-asset and they take long and short positions across a range of things. And this could be equities, bonds, currencies, really advanced derivatives. You know, they they find two things and they play them off each other. And this could be something as obscure as playing the New Zealand dollar against the South African rand, you know, and, and things like this. And basically what it means is they're looking at the global economy, seeing where there's valuation arbitrage almost to an extent yeah. and making long and short decisions based on that. There's also something called market neutral funds. And what these do is that they what they're trying to do is basically keep investors neutral to the market. And what this means is that, like they are they're making balanced long and short decisions at any point, which means that they are net long short, which means they have got as many long uh, positions as short positions. So what should happen is that in any market situation, you would underperform a rising market, but you would also outperform a, a falling market in a situation you're kind of you're taking yourself out of the market. And this is a key kind of strategy for diversification. Um, now, Darius, I know that you, you like um, absolute return funds in the current environment, um, but all that sounds great, as, as Tars explained to us, but there must be some risks. So what are the risks of these different types of absolute return funds? Well, absolutely. There's risk with everything, let's be honest. Um, you know, if we start with sort of the long, short equity, if I'm long shell and short BP, as long as that's in the right order, that's fine. But if it if actually shell outperforms BP, um, you, you could lose on that type of trade, even though that would be a market neutral trade because you would be long one unit of shell and short one unit of BP. Now, as long as shell outperforms, that's fine. You can still make a return. Um, so there is obviously the risk that actually the manager gets that wrong, both on the long and the short side. You could be long of a pharmaceutical stock or short of a pharmaceutical stock like Shire, when that comes to get bid for, and actually instead of going down because you thought it was going to go down because it was structurally challenged, somebody comes and says, I think this company's worth 40% more. Well, that's clearly quite risky on, uh, uh, and can move it. But I think it's always useful to remember the absolute return sector is often criticised. You look at the average fund performance, was very little last year. But I went to see um, Nick Osborne, one of the co-managers of the BlackRock UK Absolute Return Fund in March. And literally over that year, he had given a zero return. It was like 0.01 or something. But actually, the FTSE in that 12 months was down about 8 9%. And, you know, we go to question these fund managers and say, look, zero is not much of a return. And they said, but Darius, you do remember the first thing I'm paid to do is not to lose money. And the FTSE 100s lost around 8 to 10%, and I'm level. So it is a reminder of what these strategies are trying to do. And there will be years where some of these absolute return funds will give you quite a dull return. You know, if equities are up 10 20%, and they make 3 or 4 you know, you have to remember that they're a different vehicle. They may use equities, and as Taha said, there are some that use macro, there's some that use multi-strategy, some of them use emerging market bonds. I don't really care what their tool is, is how much return are they trying to take and how much risk are they doing to take to try and achieve those returns. And Taha, I mean, we can tell that Darius has got strong positive opinions, I would say, on targeted absolute return funds, but there were some analysts that we spoke to who really didn't like them what were the reasons they you know didn't like them absolutely these are these, these are the kind of funds that kind of they split analysts down the middle yeah darius obviously is, is quite bullish on them um and you know they they can serve purposes but other people have a lot of concerns 
one of them is actually around fees. So the actual annual management charge on these uh, these funds is, is kind of, you know, is relatively acceptable. But what a lot of them do is charge performance fees, which is a questionable strategy when you're looking at that these funds aren't supposed to be outperforming anything. They're meant to be, you know, absolute returns. Some of them are market neutral. But they have set yeah, some perf- of them actually have quite low target returns. If you're trying to be cash yeah. plus three when cash is at a rate of 0.5 as it is in the UK and then you're charging a performance fee Indeed. over that, I think, you know, I, I think there's certainly questions on the fee side for sure yeah i mean some of these funds have a 20 percent performance fee on on libor plus three and that's you know that's that's not a that's not a difficult benchmark to be trying to beat um so when you start adding on these things they become quite expensive and you have to question what you're actually paying for there's there's other concerns as well so particularly um one of the analysts uh, mentioned in the future has an issue with this concept of diversification from bonds and uh, his point is that the bond market is so diverse that you shouldn't necessarily need to you know, you can you can have issues on government bonds and maybe high high highly rated uh, kind of corporate bonds, but the bond market is so diverse in itself that you should be able to find opportunities for diversification and returns, and you know, and kind of well, on correlated returns somewhere else. And his you know his response was that he thinks bond managers are better than absolute return managers, so therefore he would still rather have you know a strategic bond fund, for example. The main thing I think a lot of people have with these strategies is particularly the multi-asset global macro funds. You know, the the most famous one is the is the GAR strategy from Standard Life. Is that these are so complex that no one really knows what they're investing in, and they you know they are institutional investors in GARs that have randomly turned around after five years and gone, I have no idea what you guys are doing. There's a, a fifty-strong team almost running strategies, and they are making really margin like proper margin calls, as I mentioned, you know, things like the New Zealand dollar and South African rand. And it goes back to the basic assumption of, you know, don't invest something that you don't that you don't understand. And if that's the case, then you probably shouldn't be investing in these global macro funds. And and Darius also mentioned that at sector level, um, many of these funds you know, as a whole, not necessarily good, great performance. No, no, of course. Mm. I'm not, as I said, as we talked about, the sector is so diverse, so it's kind of hard to find. You have to really understand what the fund is doing. It's kind of hard. You can't just go in like in like in the UK equity sector and go, okay, this one's done over well over one, three and five years. It's you know, if it's got it following a decent large cap strategy, this is one for me. The the funds are so diverse and they're all trying to do different things that it's hard to find the right one for you at any given moment because it's hard to compare. It, it certainly is mm. a challenge for retail investors who manage their own SIPs or ISAs or, or investments generally. The reason I like them is broadly they do offer diversification to equities and to bonds. Um you know, one of my favourite funds, Henderson UK Absolute Return, is another of these long short. Actually, last year delivered us a return of around 1.8% after the performance fee. But if I look at the strategy uh, since the inception of the fund, it's delivered about just under 7%. And they've been running a hedge fund for longer. And the long-term returns, because they made such good returns in 2008, forget global equity markets were down between 30 and 40% in 2008. They actually made 23% by being short of the banking sector. And that's where I think maybe the fee thing, I think, is quite sensitive. But since that strategy has been running, they've made around 9% with a correlation to equities of under a third and a broad risk bucket of about you know a fifth of equities. So sometimes you, you do have to pay for these things in life. And you know, again, the, the, their 12-month return was really disappointing. But that's a strategy we've been invested in since the fund launched. Um, and as I say, if most investors were... Said over a ten-year view, would you take six percent return per annum, with much lower risk than equities and indeed bonds at these valuations? I'd suggest some people would, but they just don't all come in a straight line, like most asset classes. No, absolutely, and um, 
Absolutely. There, there was some, you know, there's some funds in this sector that um, I think one of the, the, the key things that we saw in 2016 was is that a lot of these funds had done really well in 2015 by shorting the mining sector, but they didn't change the short by the time the mining sector reversed in the start of 2016. Mm. Their 2016 returns were appalling. Like some of these funds lost 36% over the okay. course of the year. Wow. And it's, it's just, yeah, there yeah. Was, there's so many diverse strategies, but you have to make sure you pick the right one. It, absolutely. I mean, the sector is really tricky. If, if one of these funds gives you a 40% return in a year, and then in one month can lose you 18%, that is a high-risk absolute return fund. In fact, I wouldn't even call it an absolute return fund. Some of the funds that I've mentioned or the ones that we look at tend to be at the lower target. I, they are trying to target 5 to 10%, but they're not prepared to take the risk. So as when I sat with Nick Osborne and BlackRock and said, you know, my first job is not to lose money. My second job then is to try and make money. Um, it's hard to sort of argue that when the markets were down 10% and he'd lost nothing, that there wasn't some value in these strategies. But look, they're not for everybody. I think Tar's absolutely right. The ones that go up a lot can go down a lot. Whether Whatever instrument they use, global macro is quite difficult for understand. Multi-asset, multi-strategy like Standard Life Gars and their sort of uh, brothers and sisters that have come out now from Invesco uh, uh, and Aviva. You know, they do have a place, but they're not easy for you retail investors to understand that's for certain so how would you actually go about choosing them then you know what's your strategy for choosing that so, so the first thing is how much target you know what, what are you trying to achieve and if it is a cash plus five or six something or, or like an equity like return but with lower volatility and then the other thing we look at is is the drawdown so you know, we would look at that observation period say between right at the end of um january this year when the inflation worries kicked the down leg in markets to around the middle of March, you know, when broadly equity markets went down, up, down, but in aggregate they were down between 10 and 15%. How did these absolute return funds do in that time? And the ones which uh, we own in our, our funds or, or, on, or on the buy list at Chelsea, the worst return in that period was down around one and a half. You know, markets are down 15, you've got to be invested in something. Well, you don't have to be invested in something, you can always use cash, but another fund that Taha mentioned, sort of the fixed income you know, is a huge asset class. There are things like floating rate notes, convertibles. Uh, one of the areas, one of the teams that are an expert in that area, Church House, they have a fund called 10x Absolute Return. It is multi-asset, but they don't actually short. So they will use cash, they will use property, they will use equities, but the full spectrum of fixed income. So things we've been talking about, bonds, if you've got a floating rate note bond, actually they are not as sensitive to interest rate rises because of that floating rate component. And they're sort of investors that are very strong in those areas and can go and find returns. Over five years, they've returned around 25%. Uh, last time I looked, you know, 5% per annum with real low risk. If you look carefully and find the ones that really protect you when things go bad, I think that's the first thing. If a retail investor looks, well, markets are down from any period in time. There's lots of observations, even in the 10-year bull market where there have been serious wobbles. How have these funds performed in those times? I think that's a real good starting place for, for, for investors to look. Okay, thank you very much, Darius and Tara, for very insightful discussion at Absolute Return Funds. And you can also see more of the funds that we think have done well in this week's magazine and the website. Spend more money is not something you would expect to be told with your retirement assets. But according to a recent study by the Institute for Fiscal Studies, it is something retirees should seriously consider. Taha, you've been looking at this. Why does the Institute for Fiscal Studies think this is something people should think about? 
So this was quite an interesting paper by the IFS. And um, what they were looking at is kind of how retirees um, kind of fund their retirement. But what they did find is that from their financial assets, and by that we're talking kind of ISAs, cash, uh, investment accounts, things like that, you know, things people use to kind of build up savings. So not not specific pension pots um, or property, is that the uh, the cash withdrawal from there was actually quite quite low, and it, um, it didn't match declines in life expectancy. So they said the life expectancy declines as you go from seventy to ninety. But the withdrawal of the assets was um, significantly lower than that. So what it shows is that people are either being too conservative or they're leaving uh, significant parts for inheritance, which is perfectly fine. Obviously, there's no way of knowing everyone's aim and everyone is slightly different. But what, 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 their, what their numbers show is that there might be a slight disconnect between what people can do and what they think they can do. Okay. Um, and what about being able to draw sustainable income? Because I imagine that's one of the reasons that people are a bit more conservative. They're worried about running out of money. So how easy is it to draw a sustainable income? So one of the things that they did, or what I took from this paper, is that there's always been discussions about this, is that the reason people leave big pots of retirement unintentionally is because they, they haven't been able to figure out what is the best way to draw down their income. And what that means is how much do you take from your investment pot over time in retirement without make, with, you know, making sure it doesn't run out of money itself or making sure you leave enough for the amount of inheritance that you want to leave. So income drawdown rates are quite complicated. There are lots of things you have to think about. And these, you know, these are the timing of your retirement. People People think retirement is long-term enough that you don't have to worry about when you actually enter the market. But there's studies that show that if you entered in 1990 and you experienced the kind of 2000, uh, 2001 market crash because of the tech bubble quite early on in your retirement, it's very difficult to recover from that. And then your, your drawdown rate would have to have been lower to make sure that your pot lasted your 30-year retirement. And it, it really matters when, when this happens. This is what the IFS paper and some other papers that I looked at, one from Southend and Parsons, really showed. Okay. What kind of level should they be looking to draw of their income throughout retirement? I mean, should they sort of have a fixed amount or should they try and vary it as market conditions change, for example? So the the idea of having a static income drawdown rate is a, a model that's kind of been around for a while. It was previously thought to be 4%, then some more research came up about 10, 15 years later that said, no, it actually needs to be 3%. But then when you look at actually a bit more, more research shows it has to be somewhere between 25 to 3% when you include kind of fees for drawdown products and investment products and advice if you if you go down that route but what actually what you should take away from this is that you probably shouldn't have a static income drawdown rate and you should flex this rate depending on the current situation because what the ifs paper also showed is that obviously this is this is on average and this doesn't account for everyone's individual situations but what the paper showed is that people spend less as they get older which is something that we can probably quite understand if you know especially if you look at your current situation or your how your parents manage money etc so you should maybe flex your rate depending on several things one how much you need when you immediately retire assuming that if you keep some money aside to account for care costs and account for inheritance but also assuming that as you get older your your actual income is going to be decreased so you can afford to take more early on and perhaps reduce this rate as time goes on or reduced rate uh, reduce the rate as markets are, aren't doing as well and take more when markets are doing well and this has a, a, a double effect of if you take less when markets are falling you're actually leaving more capital to grow when markets reverse and go up against that would then actually boost the actual pot you have at the end so it's, it's kind of you know remaining in the market but making sure you have enough income to survive Darius, we spoke earlier about, you know, all the issues sort of affecting markets, in particular the fixed income market, which is an asset class that investors have relied on traditionally in retirement. Um, Do you think that the issues that we're seeing with low yields, for example, is going to make it more difficult for investors to draw down a sustainable income? 
Well, it's certainly been more challenging in the last 10 years when the sort of the risk-free, i.e. the sort of rate on cash, has been so low. It's been at half a percent. If you shop around on cash, you can maybe get one, one and a half, maybe slightly more if you tie your money up. But when the, the risk-free, and when I say risk-free, that doesn't include inflation, because obviously if inflation is above your target, you're actually eroding your capital. But if we overlook that, the risk-free asset of cash has been so low, people can't live on a half percent yield. So you've had to take more risk, and there has been a real hunt for yield globally in the last decade. I think people need to look across all their assets in retirement, whether it's pensions, property, ISAs, cash uh, accounts. And people we speak to seem to need at least around that 4% level sort of net of all the investment charges or platform charges or other fees. And I think Taha's point, if markets are depressed, if you're still taking a, reg- a high regular income, you know, when markets in grow... You, you, you know, you do need to keep a growth element to pension. And I think sort of 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was much more cash and bond element to pensions or pension thinking. But now as we are all living older, you do need to keep some growth aspect to keep that pot, you know, ticking along the side whilst taking an income. So I think having a variable income is a good way, but people do need to live and you can't, it's very hard to live off when the risk-free rate is, is so low as it has been for the last decade. So yeah, it's a real challenge for investors. Thank you, Darius and Taha. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more about how to draw sustainable income in retirement and the best targeted absolute return funds for market volatility on the website and in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.